We are looking at the book of Jeremiah. And for those of you who might not be familiar with Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a prophet. He's delivering God's message to the people of Judah, particularly the capital city of Jerusalem. And the time period we're talking about is around 600 BC, so about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Jeremiah is delivering God's message to a nation that is in one sense very religious. They keep up their religious rituals, not just to one God, but to many different gods. They have adopted the gods of the nations around them. And the result is they're busy enough with the outward trappings of religion, but they are not listening to and they're not obeying the one true God, the God who brought them out of their slavery in Egypt and gave them this land they're living in. God has loved them and claimed them and blessed them. But like an unfaithful spouse, the people of Judah have forsaken God. Not only that, as we'll see this morning, in forsaking God, they have filled the land with evil and suffering. The most vulnerable members of society are being abused and killed. And God has sent Jeremiah into that situation with a message For years, in fact, for decades at this point, Jeremiah has been calling the people to turn back to God in repentance. But that message has been ignored. And last week, we saw God make one final appeal to the people of Judah in chapter 18. He instructed Jeremiah to do something a little bit unusual. He was to go to a potter's house. He was to watch the potter working there with moist pliable clay, molding it and forming it. That picture of the potter was God's final plea to the people of Judah. The message was, Judah, you are like clay in my hands. If you'll respond to my touch, in other words, if you'll listen to my word and take heed to my warning, God says, I will reshape you from a nation deformed by evil into a nation that is a beautiful blessing to the world. Just let me be the potter. Acknowledge that you're just clay. Acknowledge that I am the perfectly wise creator, and I will form you into what you were always meant to be. That was God's plea. And last week we saw how Judah responded. They said, we will continue with our own plans, thanks. We're going to pay no attention to what Jeremiah says. In fact, we're going to make plans against Jeremiah to attack him and shut him up. That's where we ended last week. And this morning, we're going to look at chapters 19 and 20, where we find a broken jar and a broken man. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 779. And in the large print Bibles, 1206. And we'll take the time to read both of these chapters. This is what the Lord says Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the pot-shared gate. 
There, proclaim the words I tell you, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. And they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching. And say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. This is what I will do to this place and to those who live here, declares the Lord. I will make this city like Topheth. The houses in Jerusalem and those of the kings of Judah will be defiled like this place, Topheth. All the houses where they burned incense on the roofs to all the starry host and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Jeremiah then returned from Topheth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and stood in the court of the Lord's temple and said to all the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I'm going to bring on this city and all the villages around it every disaster I pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. When the priest Pasher, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The next day, when Pasher released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord's name for you is not Pasher, but terror on every side. For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes, you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. 
I will deliver all the wealth of this city into the hands of their enemies, all its products, all its valuables, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah. They will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who live in your house will go into exile to Babylon. There you will die and be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak in his name anymore, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man... Be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb. With my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? This is God's word. And the section we have just read focuses on two things. In chapter 19, we're given a message of just and unavoidable judgment. And then in chapter 20, we see a messenger who goes down to the depths of suffering. First, in chapter 19, a message of just and unavoidable judgment. The key to understanding this chapter is to remember what we saw in chapter 18. We notice then that the work of a potter has two stages to it. In the first stage, he works with the clay as it spins on his wheel. And during that stage, the clay can be reformed as many times as necessary. It's still moldable. 
If the pot being formed is lopsided or if the sides turn out to be too thin, those flaws can be corrected. But eventually, the potter moves on to a second stage where the clay is fired, where it's baked hard in the oven or the kiln. After that stage has taken place, there is no more possibility of reforming the clay. Its shape is fixed. Whatever it is, it is. And there's no changing it. And if we bring that understanding to chapter 19, verse 1, it helps us understand the point when God says to Jeremiah, go and buy a clay jar from the potter. What Jeremiah is told to go and buy is the finished article. Something like this. And if in chapter 18, the moist clay on the potter's wheel represented Judah, here, the hardened clay jar also represents Judah. As we'll see, the information in this chapter is not new. The things Jeremiah says here are things he's been saying for many years. But the difference, the thing that is new, is the prop that Jeremiah is holding as he says these things. That's what's new, as well as what he ends up doing with the prop. In verse 1, uh, God tells him to go and buy the jar and then take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests. He's to take them with him as he carries the jar outside the city of Jerusalem. The elders are the leaders of the people, representatives of the community, and of course the priests are the religious leaders. You might wonder why would they agree to go with Jeremiah? After all, we've been hearing lately how much they're opposed to him. They don't like him. Well, the answer is probably that for all of his unpopularity, Jeremiah is an unavoidable figure. Everybody knows about Jeremiah, and what he says makes the news. These leaders know they can't easily ignore him, and they're probably hoping he'll say something they can then use against him. So they follow him outside the city as he marches ahead of them with his pot, his jar. In verse 2, says, Jeremiah takes them to a place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, also known as Topheth. It's not far away. In fact, it's just outside the city walls. And we have heard about this place before, back in chapter 7. We learned in chapter 7, this is where the people of Judah have been sacrificing their own children to the gods of the nations around them. So Jeremiah leads this group of community leaders to the site of their greatest evil, the place where their most shameful deeds have been done. And in that place, surrounded by evidence of their guilt, he holds up his clay jar and he preaches a sermon reminding them of their guilt. As I mentioned, what he says here is not new. Verses 3 to 9 are a summary of what we've heard many times in chapters 1 to 17. And no doubt the people of Judah have heard it even more times than that. Look at verse 4. 
They have forsaken me, God says through Jeremiah, and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention. Nor did it enter my mind. In verse 4, the blood of the innocent means more than just the child sacrifices that are mentioned in verse 5. It includes taking advantage of the vulnerable, oppressing the poor. That is the kind of society Judah has become. When any society rejects God's higher authority, the result is those who have power become the highest authority. And they take advantage of those who don't have power. God makes it clear in verse 5, the evil that has taken hold in Judah comes from rejecting his word. Much of the Old Testament law was really a manifesto for caring for the vulnerable. God's Old Testament law is God's word, which is a revelation of God's heart. And as he says here, the kind of evil that took place in the valley of Ben-Hinnom was the utter opposite of what is in his heart. Our English translation says mind, but it's literally heart. And God goes on to mention the consequence of this persistent evil, the end result of all this sin. In verse 6, the valley of Ben-Hinnom will become the valley of slaughter. Judah's enemies will come and they will devastate the place and the people. The place where Judah chose to rebel against God and indulge all the evil desires of her heart, that will be the place where Judah is given up to her sin and where she experiences the consequences of her sin. Verse 9 says, the society that sacrificed its children will end up eating its children. Enemies will come, they will put the city under siege, and eventually the lack of food in the city will lead to cannibalism. It's a horrible, horrible picture. But in various different forms, God has been presenting this picture for decades through the preaching of Jeremiah. And in fact, for generations before Jeremiah, God has been presenting this picture through other faithful prophets. But now a corner has been turned. Up to this point, the listing of Judah's sins has always included a call to repent, to turn from their sin and follow the Lord. There was always hope. These horrible pictures of the future were warnings. They could be avoided by genuinely turning back to God. But now these pictures are no longer warnings. They are going to become reality. Look down to verse 10. This is what Jeremiah is to do at the climax of his sermon. Verse 10. Then God says to Jeremiah, break the jar 
while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. The warnings are over. Judah is no longer like moist clay on the potter's wheel. It can no longer be reformed. Judah is fixed in her ugly, evil condition. And that is how God will deal with her. He will treat her as hardened beyond all hope. And she will be shattered. Just like the clay jar at Jeremiah's feet, disintegrated into a thousand little pieces. The jar cannot be fixed. It cannot be put back together. And neither can Judah. The only possible hope would be for God to create a new people on the other side of judgment and death. But there is no hint of that here. For these people, there is no hope. This is final. And this is a picture you and I need to consider. Because this is not just about ancient Judah in 600 B.C. The New Testament chooses this picture of devastation to illustrate the realities of hell. A place where evil is unchecked and even the dead have no rest. Just as the bodies in Ben-Hinnom are picked over by birds and wild animals. By New Testament times, the valley of Ben-Hinnom was known as Gehenna. And Jesus said, hell is like that place. What qualifies people for hell? The same thing that qualified Judah for devastation. A refusal to listen to God and do what God says. And that means hell is not just for those who sacrifice their children. It's also for the person who quietly ignores God and lives like their God of their own life. That's equally an offense against God's love and care. And so this message of just and unavoidable judgment is a message for all of us to take seriously. In this moment of time, your life is still like moist clay. If you respond to God's warning, he will remold you into the person you were meant to be. A man or woman who thrives by living under his good and wise authority. But sooner or later, there will be no more warnings and no more hope, only devastating judgment. That's the uncomfortable message of Jeremiah chapter 19. The message of chapter 20 focuses in on Jeremiah himself. We're shown a messenger who goes down to the depths of suffering. In previous chapters, we've heard 
a little about plots against Jeremiah. We've been aware that he has enemies. We've been made aware of that. But this is the first time we've actually seen his enemies in action. The end of chapter 19 told us, after Jeremiah preached his sermon in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to a select group of influential people, then he walked back into the city of Jerusalem and he preached it over again to the crowds at the Lord's temple. And chapter 20, verse 1, tells us what came of all this preaching. When the priest, Pasher, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. Why would the official in charge of the temple of the Lord be the one to act against Jeremiah? Well, Pasher and his colleagues have been one of the main targets of Jeremiah's preaching. Jeremiah has condemned them for preaching peace when they should have been preaching repentance. They've been telling the people of Judah everything's fine when they should have joined Jeremiah in warning the people. And for Pasher... This latest dramatic sermon from Jeremiah is just a step too far. Pasher does not want people to be unsettled. He wants them to feel good about themselves. He believes the role of religion is to give people the message they want to hear rather than the message they might need to hear. Pasher's religion is the kind described by Martin Luther King. He talked about churches that are like thermometers when they ought to be like thermostats. A thermometer just tells you what the temperature is. A thermostat works to change the temperature. And in his day, Martin Luther King lamented churches that just reflected the ideas and principles of popular opinion. When what they should have been doing was working to change ideas and principles until they reflected God's vision of the peace and flourishing that comes when men, women, and children listen to his word and trust his wisdom and obey it. Pasher and his religious colleagues are thermometers. They have no interest in being thermostats. And so they will not dare to speak an unpopular word. And they'll take action against anyone who does speak an unpopular word. They love to preach peace. But they're not willing to treat Jeremiah peacefully. They'll tolerate all sorts of genuine evil in their society. They've been tolerating child sacrifice well enough. But they will not tolerate Jeremiah. And if that sounds a little bit familiar, it should. Because when a society's greatest principle is that everyone should do what's right in their own eyes... The result is persecution for those who dare to say we should be doing what's right in God's eyes. 
In Jeremiah's case, he gets beaten and then put in the stocks. And there's some debate about what exactly that entailed. Of course, we immediately think of the good old English stocks, where the kind we've all posed for photos with, their heads stuck through. But it's likely the stocks mentioned here were not just for holding the person in place so people could throw cabbages at them. This was actually a torture device that twisted the body. But there's no doubt it was also intended to humiliate the person. It gave passers-by the chance to say and to throw whatever they wanted at the person. We might wonder, how is Jeremiah going to react to a day and a night in those stocks? Will it succeed in quieting him down? Well, look down to verse 3. The next day, when Pasher released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord's name for you is not Pasher, but terror on every side. For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. I will deliver all the wealth of the city into the hands of their enemies, all its products, all its valuables, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah. They will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who live in your house will go into exile in Babylon. There you will die and be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. Jeremiah seems as feisty as ever. In verse 3, his new name for Pasher, it's a play on words. Pasher sounds like the Aramaic for fruitful on every side. But Jeremiah is going to call him terror on every side. It's going to be a reminder that Pasher can deny what's coming, but he cannot stop it. Jeremiah's message will come true. Commentators in this have pointed out that Jeremiah himself is going through here what Pasher and the rest of Judah will go through. God's servant Jeremiah has been beaten. He's been tortured by his own people. It's a kind of preview of what will happen to the whole nation when the Babylonian armies come. And in public... Jeremiah has stuck to his task. He's held it together. He has continued to say what God has told him to say. But in private, it's a very different situation. When Jeremiah is alone with God, he pours out all of his inner turmoil. Look at verse 7. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. 
The NIV has a footnote for verse 7 telling us the word translated deceived could be translated persuaded. And I think that's the best translation in the context here. Now that is not to say Jeremiah would never accuse God of deceiving him. He did exactly that back in chapter 15. Although in chapter 17, he had to admit it was his own heart that was deceitful. But here, a different word is used, and in the context, what Jeremiah is actually complaining about is that God persuaded him to take on this role of being a prophet. He's referring back to chapter 1, when as a teenager, God commissioned him to be a prophet. And God was very clear what that would entail. He said to Jeremiah, pretty much the whole land is going to be against you. So there was no deceit from God about what would happen. There was no sugar coating it. But when Jeremiah raised strong reservations, when he said, I'm not up to this, God persuaded him by saying, I am with you. And I will rescue you. And here, decades later, Jeremiah looks back on that initial call and he says to God, you talked me into it. But if I had known then what I know now, I'd have put up more of an argument. I might even have said no to you. Because all I get is ridicule and mockery. That's my life. I have this unpopular message that nobody wants to hear about violence and destruction. I've been unfailingly faithful to proclaim it, and all it's brought me is trouble. Insult and reproach all day long. And we already know from earlier in the book, it's even come from his own townspeople, his neighbors, and even his own family. Jeremiah is on the verge of saying, I quit, I'm done. But somehow he finds that he can't. Look at verse 9. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear them whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him, let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. It's important to see when Jeremiah says, I can't quit. I can't stop speaking God's word. It's not because there's some force making him speak. No, it's because ultimately he is convinced 
about God's faithfulness. He believes God is with him. He believes God will ultimately rescue him. And so Jeremiah does what we've seen him do before. In his despair, he looks up to God. In defiance of what he feels, Jeremiah says what he knows to be true. And that's the right thing to do. And if you or I were writing this prayer to be included in Scripture, we would probably end it on the high note of verse 13. Because we're uneasy with unresolved anguish. We want it to be cleared up and tidied neatly away. But the Bible is about real people. It's not about pretend people like Mary Poppins. And Jeremiah's real experience is that the high note of praise in verse 13 does not magically dispel all his darkness away. In fact, he slams right back into it again. Verse 14. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb. With my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb? To see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame. One commentator calls verses 14 to 18 an expression of black gloom. And some of you know what Jeremiah is going through. You know what it's like to keep looking up to God and renewing your hope in Him only to crash back into depression again. The Bible is not embarrassed to say that can be the experience of God's people. Even the most faithful servants of God can find themselves in black holes of despair that are very hard to escape from. The Bible does not try to hush up that reality. Nor does it ever suggest there's any shame attached to this kind of suffering. So if you've dragged yourself here this morning by your fingernails because you're in a dark place, please just notice you're not the only one. Some of the people God used to give us the scriptures have suffered times of deep, deep despair. You'll find similar things in the Psalms. Not every Psalm ends with a bright note. Notice that. And then notice this as well. Jeremiah's story is not over. This prayer is over, but Jeremiah's life is not over. This is chapter 20. 
It's not chapter 52. Just let that register. Jeremiah cannot see a way forward. But he keeps going forward. If you're feeling dark despair, your story is not over either. Keep going. Keep on making the effort to look up to the God who will lift you up. If you have to do it a thousand times, keep committing your cause to the Lord who has promised to rescue you. And thankfully, this passage does more than just tell us to keep going. At the beginning of chapter 20, we saw Jeremiah suffering physically as his body was beaten and tortured. Here, we have seen some of his mental suffering, which is far worse than what he went through in the stocks. But what is most significant is why Jeremiah is suffering. It's not because he's a criminal. It's because he's a faithful servant of God. He brings God's word to a God-defying society. He tells them where they stand with God, and they hate him for it. They make him suffer. We began to see last week that people's reaction to God's message is shown in their reaction to his messenger. But even as Jeremiah suffers at the hands of the people, he's going through what the people themselves deserve. Physical pain in the stocks, and the very last verse of the chapter, he's experiencing inner trouble, sorrow and shame. That is what Judah deserves. That's how the judgment of God was described in chapter 19. As this faithful servant of God sinks into the depths of suffering, as he is literally broken, physically and mentally, it's like he is experiencing what the people deserve. And of course, Jeremiah didn't choose that. Yes, he chose to obey God, knowing the consequences were going to be tough, but he did not choose to suffer what the people deserve. And yet, as Jeremiah suffers, he is foreshadowing another servant of God who would willingly suffer for the people. The New Testament tells us Jesus, the Son of God, faced trouble and sorrow from his earliest days. As a young child, he had to be carried down to Egypt to escape from King Herod, who wanted to kill him. And from then on, one writer says, not a moment of Jesus' life was untroubled. Whether it was religious leaders who hounded him around the country wherever he went, trying to catch him in everything he said, whether it was close friends who betrayed him or forsook him, until finally Jesus was beaten horrifically and hung naked on a cross to die. And as he hung there, passers-by hurled their insults at him. 
Why don't you come down from the cross? Until the moment when he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ, God the Son, went through suffering you and I cannot even fathom. He went down into dark depths of sorrow we cannot even imagine. He entered the deepest pit of God-forsakenness. And he did it for us. So we could be delivered from an eternity of God-forsakenness. The message of the Bible is that, yes, God's judgment is coming, and it's fully deserved. None of us have the credentials to get ourselves out of it or talk ourselves out of it. None of us can buy an exemption from it with money or anything else. But we can be delivered from God's judgment because Jesus went through it for us. Jesus took the full horror of hell so you and I could escape hell. The New Testament says this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus took the judgment my sins deserve and the judgment your sins deserve. Jesus experienced hell to the last drop of its bitterness so you and I would never have to face it. So if you are still ignoring God, please wake up before you become like one of those clay jars shattered by God's judgment. Trust in what Jesus has done for you and you'll be saved from judgment. If you're confident that you're good enough without Jesus, come to your senses. Hell will be full of people who thought they were good enough. People like Pasher and his mates at the temple. Jesus is your only hope. He's the only one good enough. And if you are trusting in Jesus, but you're at the bottom of a dark pit today, if you're in despair... Jesus rose from the dead to conquer your despair. I can't tell you when the darkness will lift. It could be that like Jesus, you will be troubled your whole life long. But there will come a day when your darkness will go. Just like every tear will go. And every sickness. And every burden you carry through life. And every kind of brokenness that you suffer from, 
One day we will be rescued from all of that. Because Jesus died and rose to rescue us. Your dark pit cannot have the last word on your life. Either before Christ's return or at Christ's return, you will be delivered. Because the man of sorrows paid for your deliverance. We're going to close by praising him as we remember what he has done and what he will do. We're going to sing together, Man of Sorrows.